Sarah Hinlicky Wilson, welcome to this conversation. I'm so excited to have both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. The Queen of the Sciences host and Gospel Beautiful teaming up to talk about the Book of Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Well, and I guess we should say the, the occasion um, is, uh, Paul, you recently published uh, with, Brazo, with the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible series, the Book of Joshua, which, um, <clears throat> first of all, let me just commend you for taking on such a project, because <laughs> this is not an easy book to write on. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> well, let me actually ask, ask you this question. Paul, you've written, um, you're uh, trained as a systematician, as a systematic theologian, um, as far as I can tell, this is the first kind of academic commentary on the Bible that you've done. How was that experience of, of writing a Bible commentary as a, as a theologian? Yeah, thank you, Michael. That's a wonderful question. Actually, I've engaged heavily with Scripture through the years. And uh, in my systematic theology, there are lengthy um, uh, treatments particularly of the uh, theology of the, of the Synoptic Gospels in John, uh, as well as, of course, numerous discussions of Paul's theology and Deuteropauline theology in various places. So engagement with Scripture has always been central to my understanding of the theological task. Uh, I inherit the title Systematic Theologian by default from the Division of Labor these days, but my preferred term for my discipline is critical dogmatics, and I can explain that if you're interested. Oh, thanks. I, I do. Why don't you go ahead? Would love to hear what you what uh, that what your your take on that terminology is. Right. You know, um, I know the word dogma is a dirty word nowadays, but dogma simply means the teaching. That's the the etymology of the word is the teaching, and um, I believe that theological reflection on scripture produces dogma, teaching, as Christine Helmer has argued in her wonderful book on the end of doctrine. So I take dogma to be those cognitive beliefs regarding God, Christ, the Spirit, and humanity, uh, which have been deemed ecumenically as essential to the continued proclamation of the gospel. Uh, there are certain cognitive claims that are um, embedded in the relationship of trust that is engendered by the proclamation of the gospel. On the other hand, I balance that affirmation of dogma with the term critical. And that's kind of my nod biographically and substantively to the great work of Rudolf Bultmann. It's a nod, though, far from a full embrace. In any case, I think in the course of two millennia, the tree of Christian doctrine has grown so thick and tangled and bushy that it needs a good pruning in order to make clear what is essential belief related to the, um, uh, the saving work of God in Christ by the Spirit um, uh, in order for that, uh, that, that proclamation of that salvation to continue in good health. So, yeah. As a result, that comes basically comes down to this, Michael. When I look at the gospel, the book of Joshua, I looked for its gospel. What is the message of salvation that is embedded in the book of Joshua? And I find it in the repeated affirmation 
that the Lord fights for us or for Israel. And this entails critical discussion of just what beliefs are entailed in this gospel. And that's, of course, a notoriously controversial point, whether God is believed to be on our side in our wars of extermination, or whether, in fact, we are found on God's side as he advances his reign against the Canaanite usurpers of the earth. Let me turn to my um, uh, my co-host here, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson, Queen of the Sciences co-host. And <clears throat> Sarah, I wonder, you are also a, a, a systematic theologian, or perhaps you'd say a critical dogmatician. Well, I'll let you <laughs> wrangle with the language there. If you had your choice of any biblical book in the Old Testament to write a commentary on, which one would it be? Well, I can say for certain that Joshua would be dead last. In fact, <laughs> in reality, it was dead last. The reason actually Dad got onto this project is because I I, I think I must have gotten it from you, Dad, a total fearlessness about being a systematic theologian, in quotes, um, to pursue the Bible. So I, I liked the Brazos series. So I wrote to the editor and said, hey, do you have any that are not claimed? And... Um, and he wrote back and said, well, only one, Joshua. So I was like, oof, I don't remember a whole lot about it. Don't remember really liking it, but let me give it a try. So I sat down with it. I think I got no farther than chapter eight when I was like, nope, 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 not enough nope in the world, man. I am not doing this one. And I just mentioned it casually to dad. And of course, dad being daddy was like, ooh, <laughs> that is horrible. Least, least, least hardest, um, for me anyway, the hardest to uh, allow canonical status of all Old Testament books. Uh, dad was all over that. I suppose for myself right now, now, um, I've been doing a long preaching series on 1 Samuel and interpreting Old Testament Saul in the light of the New Testament Saul, Paul. So I think probably my, my sympathies right now are with the, uh, the Samuel histories. But um, I don't know. No, no imminent. Yeah, but no imminent danger of my producing a commentary anytime soon. <laughs> well, one of the things that, that I do appreciate about the both of you is that uh, you both do in, in your various works engage the Bible really heavily. And I think that's that's commendable. You know, the uh, what's interesting about this series is I think the best ones that I've read, like yours, Paul, and uh, like Robert Jensen's on Ezekiel. <clears throat> they're coming. Robert Jensen's on Ezekiel, by the way, is is really great, um, and it is. And you Phenomenal. draw on Jensen, Paul. So I was actually going to ask that question. What's uh, uh, you and Robert Jensen seem to kind of working with these texts in similar ways, and I wonder where you saw some commonality there. Well, that's really interesting because uh, Jensen is one of the central influences on my own theological career, and that's partly because we come out of, uh, in some ways, the same kind of intellectual traditions, namely the American encounter with the twin giants of the 20th century, Rudolf Bultmann and Karl Barth, <clears throat> and uh, uh, as, uh, uh, you know, kind of orthodox or traditionally more or less orthodox Lutherans, there's, of course, a, a great interest in Scripture going back to Luther himself and a, a kind of curiosity about how the contemporary church has become so estranged from uh, Scripture. So I think all of those factors play in there. Uh, and, of course, Jensen... Um, 
had a project for the um, uh, what do you call it? Re returning the Bible to the church or reclaiming the Bible for the church. Uh, that was a lot correlated with the Yale School uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And that was another influence, Michael. Um, so, I, yeah, I would sum it up kind of like that. You know what? The other kind of point of connection I see is that, you know, both of you are part of a generation of, of biblical scholars who grew up reading people like <clears throat> Gerhard von Rad. Klaus Westermann, Hans-Walter Wolf, you know, these just giants, uh, deeply theological, all of them, Klaus Westermann, all of them deeply theological, but thoroughly critical, you know, in, in the kind of historical, critical tradition, historical methods. And that, I think, also connects the two of you. Methodologically, those, those, me those theories, though they aren't the center of the work that you're doing, they still carry weight and they echo in both of your work. Absolutely. Another great teacher for me, Michael, was J. Lewis Martin. Uh, I, he was on my doctoral committee at Union Theological Seminary. Uh, he inspired my doctoral dissertation. Uh, I sat in on his seminars on Mark and Galatians, and I learned from him this kind of nuance on the classical historical critical focus on the Zitz im Leben, the situation in life that uh, that uh, uh, occasions the writing of a scriptural text. And Martin's particular uh, uh, focus on that was in respect to the letter to the Galatians. To read the letter, he said, with Galatian ears. How would the Galatian congregation have heard or understood this letter of Paul? And that's a way of locating the first audience of a text locating its historical context that way, which avoids the, the dangers of trying to get into the intentionality of the author and so forth. So that was a method of historical criticism uh, that I liked a lot and learned from, from J. Lewis Martin. And the way that played out for me in the Joshua commentary was realizing the full weight of the insight that the f canonical book of Joshua is a creation of the post-exilic community. That is to say, um, as Ezra says in his lengthy speech in the book of Nehemiah, here we are, slaves in our own land, ruled over by kings that you have put over us, O Lord. In other words, this is post-exilic uh, uh, Judah, or the uh, Jews that have gathered, regathered around Jerusalem, but in poverty, in ruin, having lost the land, having lost sovereignty. This is the concrete audience to which the book of Joshua was first addressed. And I think that's a crucial, not only historical insight, but a hermeneutical insight as well. So, Sarah, you had said uh, in that humorous story that, <laughs> that you just shared that it took you eight chapters to realize that you didn't want to read the book of, jo you know, do commentary on Joshua. It probably only would have taken me two, I think, or <laughs> I think I would have given up. You're, you, are, you are far more persistent and courageous than I am, is what I mean to say. But I wonder, has your, has your dad's reading of Joshua shifted anything in you? Are you able to kind of read it differently or more with, I guess, a more... Um, I don't know, different kind of openness to it. Oh, for sure, for sure. Because, you know, I, I, 
I suppose my I still come first at biblical texts devotionally and kind of take them at face value, which I don't think is a bad place even for sophisticated people like us to, to start with. And so to, to take just kind of your, your surface level reading of Joshua, it is offensive and horrifying, or it's incredibly boring. It's like, you know, Catch-22 went back in time. Let's either murder everybody or tell you where this stone is and then six paces to the left add another marker and, but then you cross the Jordan blah you know it's just very dull so uh yeah yeah I've I've found um I I think the the other thing for me um or let me restate that what I particularly found helpful in dad's approach in in being able to combine both the historical critical approach to it I mean that makes a huge difference to me that this is a post-exilic book um and I wouldn't say my my training was so heavily in historical criticism I think by the time I was in seminary it had shifted really over to literary but then actually dad brings in this literary reading and saying what is the purpose of this text who is it addressed to and then by being able to build out of that as a Christian reader of this Old Testament text and and to make the connection between the Jesus Joshua and the the uh, um, Joshua son of Nun Joshua, it it sort of reauthorized my my right to read Joshua Christologically and Christianly, and so in that respect, I found things in Joshua not only redeeming but necessary, um, such as like the horrifying fact of is it what the five kings are something like crucified. They're like impaled and then set in a tomb. And it's a terrible, terrible story. And yet I somehow as a Christian can say somehow Christ was actually with the the murdered kings and was was buried with them. And that allows me to kind of put the whole story in a larger redemptive context, even with the, the truly awful vicissitudes of history that we have to cope with. And, you know, that's what history is like. You know, Joshua isn't telling us something we shouldn't already know. We shouldn't be too pious to cope with Joshua's harsh reality. At the very end of the commentary, let me just read a brief passage. The final words in the commentary um, kind of give the reader an idea of, of how this shakes out for me, this combination of historical, critical, and theological reading Here we go. The last paragraph in the commentary. The spiritual power of the book of Joshua does not consist in the pat answers and platitudinous assurances of triumphalist theologies of glory. The religious ideological bromides easily produced but falsely by superficial reading looking for quotable quotes. The book's prophetic punch instead lands squarely on such misreaders in the new and messianic questions framed by careful reading. These questions cause us to look for the God who fights against us, who imagine ourselves his friends, in order to fight for us as his enemies. Compare that to Romans 5, 1 through 12. End quote. That is a that's a rich set of sentences, Paul. Um, the sort of for us and against us elements. Of, you know, I just you know I hear you know elements of of uh, uh, of law and gospel, 
of demand and promise, of judgment and hope. Am I right to kind of hear some of those themes coming out? Right. Indicative and imperative, already and not yet. All of these themes are um, uh, the the grammar that is uh, supporting the commentary, absolutely. You know, sometimes the language of sort of God is for us, God is against us, sometimes I think it's that distinction gets too easily drawn. And I think sometimes what what's easy to forget, and I always have to remember this when I'm reading the prophets, especially prophets like Amos, is that sometimes in order for God to be for us, God has to be against us. And so what I mean to say is that the against us is actually a sign of God's deep passion and pathos toward us. Is that part of what I'm hearing in your paragraph too? Absolutely. I mean, that's in my systematic theology, that argument is carried out explicitly that the God of love must be against what is against love. And that's just a way of paraphrasing Luther's distinction between the alien and the proper work of God. The God of love's alien work is to be against us when we are against love. And that is a, a serious againstness. It's what uh, the scripture, what the book of Joshua depicts in, in harem warfare, uh, the, the, the anger of God against all the pollution that is produced by the Canaanite city-states and the need to purify the land of this corrupt uh, imperialism, this stratified uh, society, in order to cleanse the land of the usurpers of the earth in order to make way for the reign of righteousness, life, and peace that comes as the, um, uh, as the per- liturgical parade headed by the Ark of the Covenant crosses the Jordan and then uh, uh, goes, goes to war against uh, the um, Canaanite city-states, particularly their kings, in order to uh, 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 redeem the land for a new kind of human society. <clears throat> so yes, law and gospel, God's love is against us uh, in order that God's love can be for us when we have come to the consciousness uh, of the ways in which we have been against God. You know, there's been a lot of um, cheap condemnation peddled through Christianity as if, you know, God's real desire was to damn us on a technicality. And a lot of people have wasted a lot of spiritual energy on fears of that. And there's, you know, there are appropriate um, blowbacks against that and condemnations of that kind of condemnation. But I think what you get out of this, this deep message of Joshua and the prophets in the New Testament is something actually significantly more terrifying, which is what if your encounter with God reveals to you that you are in fact against love? Like we all assume that people are just naturally oriented towards love, but what if we find out that we actually do love sin, death, and the devil more than we love God or neighbor or even ultimately our own skin. We'll give ourselves up in order to hang on to our sins. And so that's where you need not just, not actually just forgiveness. Imagine me, a Lutheran theologian saying that, but you need (laughs) actually a liberator, a warrior who's going to come and yank you by the collar and say, enough is enough. We got to get you out of here. So you stop loving fatally these things that are your ultimate and final death. And I think that's the kind of strong image of God, the warrior that is necessary out of Joshua and 
that, as Dad has pointed out, um, you know, the evangelist Mark is almost certainly picking up on in his depiction of Jesus in the gospel. Hmm. Yeah, and then I think, you know, in the beginning of the book of Joshua, when the whole subject of, of uh, should I explain this term, harem warfare? Please, go ahead. Please do, yeah. Otherwise, people will think you're talking about 100 beautiful women in Persia. So, uh, yeah. Yes, that's right. It's very important to uh, distinguish these. <laughs> this is the Hebrew noun and verb, which is so difficult to put into English. It's usually translated uh, devoted for destruction. Uh, and it, it stands behind the extermination commandment of the, to Israel in its warfighting that they're not to allow any possible um, 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 survivors. Uh, as, the, as the Lord gives them victory in battle, the mop-up operation is to eliminate all. And of course, that's what's so horrifying, and that, what, what's, what, that is what creates the impression that this is ethnic cleansing and genocide, to use very modern concepts and project them back into this history. But what we, what I argue in the commentary, I think on good historical as well as literary grounds, is that uh, the purpose of warfare uh, in, in the ancient Near East was conquest for the purpose of subjugation and exploitation. And the way that worked was the conquerors uh, exterminated the military resistance. That would be all the males capable of being warriors. And the rest, the women and the children, were then enslaved, uh, taken as booty, and made into slaves. And so the command to exterminate is actually a way of taking anything out of human usage by giving it back to God. And so the command to exterminate all the Canaanites meant you're not going to war for as business as usual, for the usual imperialistic reasons. Uh, so the command to exterminate is not just potential uh, resistance in male warriors, it's also not to take slaves and the women and the children, to put them out of human usage. Now, it's brutal, and it's shockingly brutal and to us, and it's no word of God for us today. But historically understood, it eliminates the usual motives for going to war. That's the import of this command. And yet, no sooner does Joshua introduce this command in the campaign against Jericho, that immediately it gets violated by the vows that the spies have made to Rahab the, the Canaanite harlot. And those vows come into conflict with the command to utterly exterminate all. So you have a marginal Canaanite who, by the way, is a traitor betraying Jericho and its king and saving the spies, uh, and she is exemplary as a confessor of Yahweh, and she sides with Yahweh against Jericho, and in the process extracts a, a commitment from Israel to protect her and her family when Jericho is destroyed. So in the very first execution of the command to exterminate all, 
you have an exception. A Canaanite prostitute who confesses Yahweh is saved from the destruction of Jericho. Now that is really interesting in itself, but then it sets up a contrast several chapters later with an Israelite of Israelites, Achan, the son of Judah, an exemplary Israelite, who evidently, during the destruction of Jericho, takes some booty and secrets it away and hides it in his tent. And, of course, the Lord knows that this is happening, and in the next little skirmish against the next Canaanite city, Israel is defeated and runs away with its tail between its legs, and Joshua grovels on the ground, wondering what has gone wrong, until the Lord says, Stand up like a man. This is what's happened. Someone in your camp has taken the forbidden booty that it was to be devoted to the Lord and has coveted the goods of Canaan. And then Achan is discovered and found out, and the very sentence of extermination which falls upon Canaan falls upon an Israelite of Israelites, Achan, for what? For coveting the goods of Canaan. All this indicates to me, and this is, of course, argued in detail in the commentary, that this is not ordinary warfare. This is warfare of a very different kind. It is fundamentally fabulous or miraculous. It's not the kind of warfare that any rational king would bank on marching out to battle. Um, and its purpose is not to replace kings with Israelite kings, its purpose is to do away with kings. Joshua never aspires to kingship, and Joshua is not made a king throughout the book of Joshua. He gets instead the designation Ebed Yahweh, servant of the Lord. Yeah, Paul, so there's a lot, a lot to say there. One of the things I want to bring out, though, is the way that, on the one hand, in the commentary, you don't shy away from you know, naming things that are deeply dis disturbing, you know, that this to our eyes looks like genocide, you know, it, it's deeply violent, you don't shy away from that, but you also attempt to appreciate the way that the book also embodies critiques within its own setting. And I think this is a point that I'm kind of, in our kind of current age of repudiation, I've been trying to emphasize to both students and pastors that I have a chance to teach that when we're working with these ancient texts, we have to do both. Like, we can look at them and call things as we see them. We also have to attempt with a little bit of empathy and generosity to say, well, what are they attempting to accomplish in their own time? And I think about, you just mentioned Jericho, right? I mean, the Jericho story is probably the most famous story from Joshua, but it also, the, its emphasis on the walls, um, really in, it contains within it a deep critique of royal power and of trust and of trust in things like walls. And, and, but you don't, if you don't take the time to kind of appreciate the context the way that you just did in your comments there, you don't recognize that there's also critique that's happening within these texts about, you know, the power brokers of the ancient Near East. Right. Well, you know, you can't really celebrate the exodus from Egypt as the liberation of the slaves without understanding that Joshua is the continuation of the same motif, the same story, the same theology. 
I think even historically most scholarship today regards the Canaanite city-states as an extension of Egyptian hegemony. And so when this little band of escaped refugees from Egypt filtered into the territory of Canaan, it found indigenous peoples like Rahab and the Gibeonites who, were, who flocked to the message of Yahweh is a warrior, Yahweh is his name, Exodus 15. They flocked to that message because here at last was a, a God who would fight for the little people, the underdogs, the oppressed, uh, the nomads, the landless, the prostitutes, the, and so forth. So I think that you can't really rejoice in the Exodus and then condemn the book of Joshua. It's a continuation of exactly the same story. Let me share a quote here that I think touches on themes that both you, Paul, and Sarah have, um, I think, commented on in the past. So here's the quote from page 31. Uh, you say, the most profound challenge to taking Joshua's scripture is not an objection to the thesis that a theological reading produces the knowledge of Yahweh who fights for us, but rather the post-Holocaust objection not only that Yahweh failed to fight for the Jewish innocent against the Nazi slaughter, but more darkly that Nazis learned genocide ultimately from this book of the Hebrew Bible, disseminated in the Western tradition through its canonical status in Christian scripture. That just strikes me as a, as a deeply profound reflection on the reception of the book of Joshua and its potential impact on 20th century history. I'd just be interested to hear from both of you your reflections on that. Well, the first thing to say quickly is, yes, a certain way of reading Joshua in the modern world especially, I think, has been triumphalist and, and, and highly injurious and destructive. I, you think of a, uh, the colonization of South Africa and then the erection of the apartheid system. All of that was, was uh, uh, justified in terms of the uh, book of Joshua. I'm sure that uh, Manifest Destiny in the American frontier, there were also uh, appeals to Joshua to justify uh, the um, uh, um, campaigns against indigenous Americans. Uh, and certainly there are elements in the modern state of Israel, the ultra-Orthodox uh, settlers in the West Bank, uh, who likewise invoked the authority of the book of Joshua. Uh, of course, all of these are using the book of Joshua for the purposes of imperialism and colonialism. Whereas I think that if you read Joshua in continuity with the book of Exodus, it is exactly the other way around. The, the God of the Bible, as my teacher James Cone constantly reminded us, was the God of the oppressed. And Martin Luther in the Galatians commentary says something almost identical. God is the God um, um, of the poor, the weak, the helpless, and so forth and so on. Um, and if that means uh, in some historical certain stances a certain kind of militancy, yes, even violent militancy, well, that's the world we live in. Though I think ultimately for Christians, as Sarah was saying earlier, um, we have to take uh, Joshua the son of Nun as a type uh, of Joshua the son of Mary, the son of God. Uh, 
uh, who fights um, 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 who fights for us by the stratagem of the cross and with the sword of the spirit, uh, whose battles are not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of wickedness in high heavenly places, and such themes like that. Yeah, I guess my my contribution to this is that you know it, why why did the Lord fight for Israel then and appears not to have fought as a, as valiantly and successfully in the twentieth century, and one of the ways I get at this is that we've all sort of become dispensationalists and we're all trying to figure out the secret code to history and get the reading right and then put ourselves on the right side of it. Um, and I don't mean this as a cheap dismissal of, of the problem. I think dispensationalism itself is the cheap dismissal of the problem. Um, but I think one of the things you get out of Joshua is that there is something miraculous and incalculable about the Lord's successful warriorship that you can't ever deploy as a stratagem. I, I realized actually in reading this commentary that I always thought, um, the U.S. and England won World War II because we were right, morally. And uh, it, it took some adult knowledge to realize, like, well, maybe. I hope that's one of the reasons why. But it's also because we had good military strategy. We had good strength. We uh, had arms and weapons. And um, the, the bad guys didn't. And I think that's one of the, the dangers of reading any war morally is that is that winning or losing is a, is a moral judgment. Um, so that, oh, I, that I, I guess all I'm trying to do here is muddy the waters even further. And so say finally that if you're going to read Joshua at all, you have to read him canonically. You have to read it, the book, canonically. And so you have to be able to say with Joshua, the Lord is a warrior and wins on our behalf, magnificently, graciously, miraculously. But you also have to read that knowing that even in that book, there are the five defeated kings who are also types of Christ, just like Joshua, the warrior. And there's also the angel of the Lord, who when Joshua says, are you on our side or the enemy's side, simply says no. Like there's there's the Lord who, who opts out of the whole cycle of warfare. And then there's the rebuke at the end to the triumphant and successful and blessed and chosen and said, you you can't believe and you won't believe and you won't abide by this covenant. So uh, uh, the whole thing has to be always read, balanced against everything else. And I, so I suppose to the larger question, we're so extremely anxious now to um, say anything good about winners because we've seen how often the winners are bad and how terribly that can hurt the defeated. But I think if we left out the triumphant warrior motif of the Lord, we'd be impoverished. But we don't want to take it at the expense of all the other motifs of the Lord that we're getting in Joshua as well as in the whole scriptural canon. Yeah, Michael, you know that passage that you um, um uh, cited a little bit earlier, is in response to the Jewish writer Bredermann, um, who was um, posing this question for contemporary Judaism, uh, which finds itself very much on the horns of a dilemma that Emil Fackenheim, another Jewish thinker, classically articulated when he spoke of the 614th commandment. You know, the rabbis counted 613 commandments. Yeah, right. And he added one, the 614th commandment, which was, Thou shalt not give posthumous victories to the Nazis. Thou shalt not give posthumous victories to the Nazis. And what he meant by that 
What a terrible victory for the Nazis if we Jews should lose our faith in the Lord who fights for us and in our own election as his covenant people. That would be the deepest final victory of Nazism if we Jews lost our covenantal relationship and faith in the Lord who fights for us. Now that's a dilemma for Judaism. I don't presume uh, as a Christian to adjudicate that uh, uh, dilemma for Jews, but I think Christians can learn from that. We can learn from that, uh, that the cost of superficial and literalistic reading uh, is this kind of triumphalist theology. And I think careful, close, patient literary reading of Joshua uncovers all the anomalies, the dissonances, the contradictions that saturate the book so that by the time the book is done, the whole program of harem warfare has disintegrated. It has fallen apart. Uh, with all sorts of uh, dilemmas like, do I keep the vow to Rahab or do I kill her? Do I uh, respect the covenant with the Gibeonites or do I um, uh, uh, kill them? And in all of these cases, the, the uh, command for categorical extermination unravels. Um, and as a result, and this is the message I think for the post-exilic community, um, the politics of 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 purity um, have collapsed in the failure uh, of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. A politics of purity becomes impossible. And what happens by the time of the post-exilic community and the theology of the book of Joshua is its transformation into a policy of self-purification. Harem ceases to be a noun which identifies the polluting other to be exterminated and becomes a verb, a reflexive ber verb, about how I uh, uh, purge myself of those uh, covetous desires that led Achan astray, for example. Really interesting points, and it makes me think that I think in the, the the more simplistic versions of kind of post-colonial criticisms of Joshua, the, the simplistic ones, not the ones that are really serious, but often the irony is that they're, they're, they interact primarily with this triumphalistic strain within Joshua in somewhat of a simplistic way, while ignoring the ways that both you have, both of you have pointed out that the text actually destabilizes that narrative in itself. Um, and, and there are different ways that the, that the text actually deconstructs that, that, uh, that triumphalist narrative and doesn't allow it to stand, but it takes a pretty careful reading that, like the two of you have done uh, in order to hear that voice come through clearly, I think. Yeah, yeah, careful reading that's also theologically intended. I think you have to add that, Michael, because if you simply take a, a purely literary approach, uh, you know, this Daniel Hawk wrote a, a wonderful literary, literary commentary um, on um, Joshua, which I learned a lot from and benefited a lot from. But it's not finally a theological reading. It doesn't finally deal with the knowledge of God. It doesn't finally uh, talk about uh, these tensions in, in God 
between the wrath of his love uh, in conflict with the mercy of his love and and how that uh, tension that theological tension really is the dramatic uh, tension uh, throughout the book of Joshua and of course it points forward to a messianic resolution uh, so the the theology of Joshua Sarah was just saying uh, is cannot finally be settled within the canonical book it points forward it points onward and both for Jewish reading and for Christian reading I can't help but think too like in the story of the destruction of Jericho with its walls coming down if this is a post-exilic book then somehow this has to also be a commentary on Ezra's rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and Ezra and Nehemiah do talk about Joshua they allude back to it so there's some kind of very complicated dialogue happening between city walls and you mentioned earlier royal privilege and the politics of purity and how much of an intact community do you have to have in order even for the worship of the Lord God of Israel to continue you can't simply diffuse into everything but then if these walls are are so high that they need to somehow be brought down again you know or you could build them halfway but then stop you know there's there's a lot more there's a lot more going on than a superficial literary only reading would would show to you. You do need that theological reading as well, and intercanonical reading. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point, Sarah, what you make about the walls and, and the Nehemiah's building and the wall, and, you know, there's a there's kind of a, a strain within what we would, like, old T scholars would call Zion theology, so you have, like, Psalms 46 and 48, 76, it, it, basically these kind of celebratory um, psalms about how God always protects Jerusalem. And the theme of walls is really important there. Um, and and uh, this is sort of the theological strain that Jeremiah has to fight against in his own time. Um, because it, it, uh, it, it's, it's the right theology if you're Isaiah facing the armies of Sennacherib, <laughs> but it's the wrong theology if you're facing Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if, that, if that makes sense, right. there's a yeah. timing issue there. But um, I think you're right about the kind of intercanonical reading you have to, those references matter, I think. You know, that just makes me think of the, uh, the, the tribal Lutheran anthem, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And, you know, what a militaristic, what a militaristic image that is. Uh, 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 what a potentially triumphalistic theology that could seem to be. Right, but I, this is uh, how Luther constructs that hymn. Uh, to me, is very much in parallel to the care, careful reading of the Book of Joshua, because it's finally when you look past the superficial imagery and don't fixate it on it from a post-colonialist perspective as emblematizing empire or something like that, without further ado. Just like in Luther's hymn, once you get past the first verse, you see that it's a hymn for martyrs. Take they goods, fame, fortune, child, and spouse. They yet have nothing won. The kingdom ours remaineth. And I think that's exactly what a careful reading of the book of Joshua produces for you as well. And if hordes of devils fill the land, all threatening to devour us, then we really want a wall to hide behind so that the devils can't devour us. You know, that's that's not an illegitimate desire. 
but it's a it, it, it's a heavenly wall. It's the, the wall which right. God is. It's not a human military stratagem. And I think right. this this is where you fail to take seriously the the absolutely fantastic or fabulous nature of warfare in Joshua. This is just not to any <laughs> rational person. This is no way to go to war. Circumcise your entire army so that they're lying in pain for three days in front of the city of Jericho who could sally forth at any moment and wipe them out and then go on a parade around the city for seven days. And on the final day, seven times around the city, everyone's exhausted and then miraculously the walls collapse. Come on, people! This is not normal warfare. This is talking about something that is beyond the usual politics, the usual imperialism, the usual wars of conquest and subjugation. This is true. I, I don't seem to remember in uh, what Sun Chu's Art of War that emasculate yourself was one of the uh, recommendations. <laughs> prior to and that. even the Allied armies didn't use that against uh, Berlin. So. <laughs> Um, uh, so here's a, here's a question. Um, let's imagine for just a moment that a, a preacher sitting at her desk on a Monday morning and she uh, looks down at the lectionary text for the coming week and discovers that one of them is from Joshua. Um, we have a number of texts that could be chosen. And she wonders whether or not to engage that text in the first place, given all the potential landmines and, and whatnot. What would be, I'd love to hear from both of you if you're willing, what would be your arguments for why she should take up that text uh, on Sunday? Uh, Michael, I wouldn't make such an argument. I wouldn't. Mm. Uh, mm. Just because, and I, here I have to make a, a statement, in most mainline Protestant churches, I won't say anything about others, uh, there is such a dearth of biblical knowledge there is such an absence of the art of theological reading of scripture that a text like Joshua is simply being thrown into the jaws of contemporary consciousness where it's going to get eaten up either by the triumphalists or by the anti-triumphalists and, and they're both going to use the text as ammunition uh, for and against their own preconceived positions. And so it's pointless to try to preach on a text like Joshua. What, a, what, a, what that pastor should do is read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest scripture until she or he is a competent teacher of scripture and then engages the congregation in competent study of scripture. Our, you know, our liturgical worship and our lectionary system historically presuppose a literate, scripturally literate audience. And that's why the scripture so often falls on deaf ears, because we don't have a scripturally literate or sophisticated audience any longer to preach these texts to. So I would say, don't even try teaching a difficult text like Joshua. Uh, instead, realize pastorally that what you need to do is teach, 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 and teach what? Teach the Bible as scripture, the Bible as scripture. And how to do that? By reading it theologically, looking for the gospel in the text. 
So do you, just just to, to clarify something, Paul, so your your recommendation is not ignore the text. Your recommendation is engage it in a in a in a place where it can be done in a really sustained way. Am I hearing you properly? Right, and also where there can be give and take. You know, the pulpit. Yeah. You know, you have a monologue usually, and uh, people can be sitting there grinding their teeth because they're so upset about what they're hearing. You know, and and the communication totally fails. But in a teaching situation, you're in a classroom where there can be give and take. And there can be, like just like in this podcast, we can go back and forth and clarify and refine and, 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 and communicate effectively. That doesn't happen in a sermon. Well, I disagree. I would do this differently. <laughs> oh, good. We're getting into some interesting territory now. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm blasting my trumpets at you, Dad. Um, you know, the problem with that is, of, of course, your, your concerns are all correct. The problem is you never have as many people at Bible study as you do at Sunday worship hearing the sermon, like it or not. So you are only going to end up teaching the hardcore who show up for everything anyway. But if you want to start re- re- redressing the damage of a biblically illiterate church, you have to do it in the context of worship. And I'm thinking here very much of Brent Strawn's amazing, troubling book, The Old Testament is Dying. Unless pastors actually preach and regularly and passionately out of the Old Testament, it's just going to keep slipping away. And Christians, if we lose the Old Testament, we lose the new too. So it's an urgent situation. But my, my fix would be is ditch the friggin' lectionary, which sucks and does not work for our biblically illiterate people, and do <laughs> a series on Joshua. You could do yeah. it for six weeks. You could do it for two months. I mean, I, I fully admit I regularly ditch the lectionary now and take sustained time through a book because you cannot understand the high points like Leviticus 19, be holy as the Lord is holy. Okay. You know, unless you get the whole context of Leviticus, that just sounds like yet another law laid on our lives with none of the, the rich detail and meaning of that. And the same thing for Joshua, even choose this day whom you can, will serve which never has the follow-up part of Joshua's critique, you know, Mm. you need the whole story there. So I would say, take your time, do it carefully, address from the pulpit all the troubling stuff, and then the people who want to keep talking to you, you can make time for them outside of worship, but it has to be in worship. But it it just needs more time and attention than most lectionary um, sequences are willing to give. And it certainly doesn't give it to Joshua. All right, Sarah, let let me just say this to you. That means Lutheran preachers will have to preach more than eight minutes, half of the sermon being other than an anecdote from a funny anecdote from their their week or something like that. Yes, they mm-hmm. will. Yeah. Yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say, let me say two follow up points. Um, one is I'm glad that you brought up Brent Strawn, my beloved doctor father. Uh, he, oh, really? The way, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. No, Brent was my my supervisor at Emory, but he he hasn't even a, he would say this to his MDiv students in a slightly different way. He would say, "Don't leave those pre- texts to lesser preachers." He would say, "You ah. have to engage those texts because people are going to hear about them, and it, it, who's you know do, is there going to be something in their minds or hearts to push back?" against what they might potentially be hearing that might not be as fruitful a way of reading. And I think it's something similar to what you're saying, Sarah. But I think, Paul, you're also right that, you know, teaching those difficult texts might have to, we might have to look a little more like Pentecostals and Evangelicals in how we preach, meaning where we have more instruction happening, more teaching happening within the pulpit. But that, you know, requires a change in practice. 
when did Lutherans stop teaching from the pulpit? I don't, I, this is not like inherent to the Lutheran tradition. This is something gone seriously off the rails. Well, I think there, there Do you was have some, answers to that. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of change in the 1960s and correlative with the, the, the um, abandonment of exegetical preaching. There used to be exegetical preaching where preachers would dissect a text from the pulpit. Uh, now that can get pretty dry. Uh, let me let me grant that. Okay, but uh, at the that went out at the same time in the 1960s as did catechesis. Uh, I mean, you know, before the 1960s, I was part of on the tail end of this. We had two years of confirmation, two hours every Saturday morning for two years, and that's in addition to Sunday school. And we actually had to memorize the small catechism and about a hundred Bible verses for each part of the catechism and everything else. And you know, by the time you were done with that, you were actually saturated with Scripture. Uh, you actually knew something. Uh, about how, how how the how the Christian faith worked scripturally, that all that was abandoned in the 1960s, and what we call confirmation instruction today is, in comparison, uh, Christianity light. Thanks, baby boomer. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh... <laughs> no, Daddy, no, you've the... always been one. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> no, this has been this has been so rich, and um, I, I do hope that folks will go out and 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 read the the commentary on Joshua. It's it's a it's a real mile a real accomplishment, Paul. And congratulations on such a, a fine and and really provocative in this moment, you know, commentary that it's richly theological, it's thoroughly Christological, and it will challenge people. I think, especially in this moment, given kind of the um, intellectual atmosphere that, that we live in right now. So appreciate it very much. Theologians, theologians that don't rub people the wrong way are <laughs> derelict in their duty. Well, <laughs> that's great. And <laughs> I love that. And I also just want to say, um, uh, thanks for the queen of the sciences podcast, which the two of you, uh, co-host, maybe you want to just say a quick word about what that's all about and sort of the season of life that that podcast finds it finds itself in. Oh, well, we, yeah, we started it three years ago. Um, we're just finishing up our third season now and it really just started, um, dad, I have to say this, you had a stroke and I suddenly realized you were going to die someday. And I wanted to get some audio record of our theological conversations before it was too late. You've been in marvelous health for the past three years. So uh, some of the immediate panic over that is gone, but it's, it's been great. You know, I live in Japan and dad lives in the U S and so it's been a way for us to kind of um, structure in our regular conversations about all matters theological. Um, but maybe one, one distinctive thing about our podcast as a theology podcast is how often our our episode topics are actually a book of the Bible, Old or New Testaments. You know, we've deliberately made that um, mutual theological reflection on Scripture to be a major part of each year's offerings. And we did do Joshua in our first season. This was when Dad was still writing the commentary. And we've done Romans and Galatians and Leviticus and Nehemiah and Isaiah and... Um, we're going to do one on Revelation soon. We did the Gospel of John. So, uh, yeah, I, I think for both of us, 
being a theologian has entailed regular scriptural reading and reflection. It isn't like, it, and the scripture isn't like a departure point to do the thing that we really want to do, <laughs> but engaging with the scripture directly is, is part and parcel uh, of what we do. Yeah, they're, they're very rich conversations, and I hope folks will go and check those out. Well, um, Paul Hinlicky, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson, thank you so much for this conversation, and Paul, especially congratulations on the book. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Michael.